Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got a really exciting guest with me, Gavin Gallagher, who's come all the way from Dublin. He represents the Earlsford Group, based in Dublin, and they've got this fantastic site called East Point, and I'm going to let him discuss a little bit about that, some of the trials and tribulations of developing that out. Uh, so, Gavin, first of all, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Delighted to be here, Rod. And can you just tell us a little bit about... Um, well, firstly, your background, how you got into property. I understand it's a, a case of a, being a family business. Was it when was the right time for you to join this business? And then can you just go on to tell us a little bit about East Point? Sure. Well, it's funny you say that because my father was always quite kind of clear that uh, I was to go and do my own thing, that I wasn't getting into uh, the family business because he had been in a family business and uh, he kind of thought that you're always looked from the inside as being, you know, junior and uh, and you never kind of get any kind of authority or responsibility. But then from the outside, everyone kind of looks upon you as having received it e- too easily, you know. So you're in the worst of both worlds. And so he always said, no, go and do your own thing. So I started out uh, by studying architecture and uh, I went to New York when I was like a 15 year old or something like that on a family holiday and fell in love with the skyscrapers and just came back convinced I was going to be an architect and uh, I was studying architecture and my uh, my dad who was kind of an active businessman he went to Africa on business and he came back very very ill and about three months later he died from his illness and um, so it was kind of thrown in at the deep end in a big way, uh, no preparation at all. Suddenly, whatever he was in the middle of dealing with, we were dealing yeah. with as a family. And my mother didn't have any kind of business background at all. And she was very good and she kind of got involved as best as she could. And she supported me while I was, she wanted me to finish out my architecture degree. But it was clear at that point that I needed to kind of roll up the sleeves and get involved in the family business. And um, at that time, what was the family business? Well, we've always been a, uh, there's a couple of different things. First of all, you could call it a kind of family office. My, yeah. my father was an investor and he, he put you know money into various startups that went on to become kind of decent businesses but the background was always real estate um, my if you go back far enough my grandfather and his brothers they actually moved here to England uh, around about the time of the war and before the war they were building army barracks mm-hmm. and then after the war they were rebuilding London after the, you know, on, the vets and all that yeah. so they built up quite a, a, a big kind of uh, brand and a name um, for building and then in the 50s they kind of came back to Dublin and started becoming house builders so uh, my father in his formative years started uh, house building and uh, working on building sites and all that and by the time I was on the scene they had kind of moved into commercial development and house building and so um, my involvement kind of started with the with the East Point um, development which was only in the middle of construction at the time that dad died so tell us about East Point in relation to obviously I'm, I understand it was built uh, it's built on landfill so that's how, right how did you go about finding the land and how <coughs> do you think well this will be suitable for what you well, want to, to with, build with all these things you, you do need a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of vision and um, so it was uh, my, my father and his business partner Dermot Pierce were both sort of active out there looking around they, they, they came across this site prior to it being landfill it had actually been a reclamation project in Dublin Port so the land is entirely uh, like a tidal estuary yeah. and uh, Dublin Port decided that they wanted to extend their land take in that area and so they built you know they built an out- outer wall and then they fill it in with landfill and so it was about a 15 year period the, the, the site was actually at the, the city dump wow. <laughs> okay and uh, and then when it was finished being used as a dump, it sat there for a number of years. And then around about eighty nine, we decided that we would have a look, and we, we thought to buy it. And uh, we didn't really know what to do with it at the time because the local authority were not going to permit any kind of uh, development. 
Um, you know, landfill has all these problems with yeah. it because there's there's gas emissions coming from it. There's methane, there's carbon dioxide, and there's hydrogen sulfide, all of which are potentially fatal um, if inhaled in, in enough quantities. So they were immediately we were, residential was ruled out. That was just yeah. no way going to happen. And then we started looking at building warehouses and sheds, which would have been an extension of Dublin Port. Yeah. Um, so light industrial. But that was not really where we wanted to go. We were thinking, we had actually, our architects had told us about this business park here in London called Stockley Park. And a lot of people are familiar with Stockley Park in Uxbridge. But at the time, it was all quite new. And uh, so we went over. And, and Stockley Park is where you've got Sky um, yeah, and a lot, a lot of, of big blue chip <coughs> companies. It's, it's, it's kind of a low density yeah. uh, office campus type thing, but it's a suburban, mm. I suppose you would call it, uh, as opposed to kind of Main Street city yeah. centre. And uh, so this looked like a good model for us. So we decided to kind of get the architects on board and they, they started going into conversations with the planners to try to kind of convince them that this was a, a, you know an active... Uh, project that we were going to go for so we managed to convince the planners and then what we had to do was convince the local residents because there was a lot of residents living at the other side of this tidal estuary yeah. that had a lovely sea view out onto kind of grass and suddenly they were being told it was going to be a sea view out onto office buildings and they weren't too fond of that idea so it took a bit of convincing and then final bit of convincing was the department of finance because um you can get tax breaks for regeneration projects. And building something like this on former landfill was extremely risky. And the only way to make it sort of financially viable was to just take that little bit of risk out that investors would be interested. And so we got these uh, capital allowances. And it was a special kind of Well, I was going to say, when you mentioned the uh, dangerous gases, uh, I was going to say, what about land remediation relief and capital allowances? Yes, that that was all part of it. And there was a lot of remediation work went into the site. I mean, we spent about a year and a half just working on the remediation of the site. We had to to dig big trenches and we had to put this, you know, crisscrossing pipe work that would actually relieve the uh, the gas if it was, we had to cover the entire, it's a 40 acre site, we had to cover the entire thing in in about a meter of hardcore, dynamically compacted, and then a gas-proof membrane placed on top of that. Just the vision of kind of looking at a dump and going, we are going to create this, and to give people an idea of what it is now, I mean, you have 10,000 visitors a day, it's almost... I kind of describe it as Disneyland for office and industrial. <laughs> it's, it's kind of where it's a bit of a Google, Oracle, <laughs> these huge uh, conglomerates that are your tenants and, um, and and thousands and thousands of, of workers coming in there each day. So. Well, it's it's taken time to to build up. When, when we first built it, there was about maybe two thousand people a day coming in to work, yeah. and uh, and at the time we thought this is great. But today, there's actually, I think, between eight and 9,000 a day work in the park. And that's, that's absolutely nuts, yeah. It, 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 and there's a lot of logistics behind that. I mean, every, I work on the operations of the park now, and uh, every day we would transport about 3,500 people to the local train station. Through, we have a shuttle service that we provide. Um, about 2,500 people park cars in the park every day. Another thousand people a day cycling. Another, I don't know, whatever the balance is left. Yeah. Over a thousand people are walking and taking public transport. So it's a very active role on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, we we look at this and, and we obviously talked about the development of it coming out, but once it's done the whole asset management part of it is just a, a huge operation in itself and we'll, we'll come on to that sort of shortly um, but I mentioned there you've got your tenants such as um, Oracle Google and, and these really sort of the big boys of the blue chips how do you go about judging the demand of those big tenants in terms of what they wanted? So did you, while you were building this, go, we're going to uh, build this in order to attract these big companies? Or did you go, we're just going to build this and then see who, who wants it? Well, the, uh, to do that would be a, a, the kind of a recipe for yeah. disaster. 
you, what we had was, uh, first of all, we had an empty site and we were going to be building over a phased period. So we had a project timeline of about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, I think we were building in the region of 35, 37 buildings. And what we, the architects kind of planned a sequencing so that we would be delivering a building about, about every six months once we, once we got into the sequence. And what's the average size of each sort of building if there is they an do, average? They do, they do range, but the smaller buildings would be around 30,000 square feet and the larger buildings are now around 70,000 square feet. Yeah, so, big, although so they're big, quite big. big, big yeah, yeah, they're big quite big, although they're low density. They're, the highest building is, well, now it's seven stories, but when we first built phase one was was just three stories and uh, so it was quite low density but we started with uh, the first building and obviously it takes a bit of vision to kind of sell it to people so we had lots of you know materials to kind of show them that this is the way it's going to look like in the future but you're bringing people into and so what date what sort of year was this this was around 90 um, around 91 we started construction yeah um, but the actual building work on const- on buildings themselves wasn't until around 93, 94. So when you're trying to attract these big tenants, I mean, now we've got things like CGI's, you've got sort of virtual reality where yeah, you can really yeah. help them picture. How did you do it then? Was it the old school models? or? Well, what you had was, first of all, we, we, we brought three of the, the big office uh, agencies yep. in to work with us. We didn't want guys competing for the same, or for, you know, for different... Um, businesses, so we just said, "Look, all three, come on in. We put you all on on the kind of retainer type thing." Yeah. And so we had everybody working together to kind of deliver. So everyone was aligned in that end goal. Yeah. Yeah. You, had, you didn't, and, and no matter who brought the tenant, everyone got paid. Fantastic. And so that was a good model because it just took away that. I mean, there was competition because everyone, you know, naturally wants to yeah. bring the business, but you didn't have a situation where you weren't going to get paid if somebody else brought the tenant. So that was helpful. But everyone was aligned. We obviously had a lot. We had a model, a big model, I mean, the size of a boardroom table that showed, you know, the vision for the project. And we would bring people into a marketing suite and we would show them. And the marketing suite was initially just a prefabricated kind of building on the site. And we had started with the the initial entrance road in, and we, you know, it was all planted up, and it was. And what was your role in this? Obviously, having an architectural background at the time, you must have been loving loving that. Well, right? or, or were you given a specific role? Well, you see, back when it was being planned and yeah. stuff, I was actually still only a student yeah. in college. My dad was alive, and he was involved yeah. in this aspect of it. And my role, my dad died in 1993, so. They had already, work was already yeah. started on the project and they were already kind of coming out of the ground with the first building and, and he died um, in November. So my role wasn't really a role at the time. I was kind of still in college, a bit too young, a bit too wet yeah. behind the ears, but I, I took a seat on the board of the company yeah. and, and I just sat there and quietly listened and then I went about finishing out my studies at the same time. It must have been incredibly difficult then to to be kind of thrown into this position on on the board and not having a huge amount of experience kind of in in, in, in trials yeah. zero experience <laughs> 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 no, less than zero experience no i mean the, it was like, like thankfully because it was a, uh, a business um, it actually the business went through quite a uh, a rocky kind of a period my dad had been chairman he died and so we appointed one of our co- one of my co- dad's cousins as the chairman, Matt, and Matt steadied the ship, and, and everything was great. But it wasn't long after that um, that the CEO actually died. Uh, the CEO got cancer and uh, and died. So the, so basically, the chairman and the and the and the, and the CEO, CEO died in a short period of time. And so uh, my cousin Matt. Um, he basically rolled up his sleeves and got involved and, and sort of stepped into both positions in a sense mm-hmm. and so it was great having that kind of steadying hand there um, you didn't feel like you were being sort of thrown to the wolves yeah. in the way that you might had you not had that so kind of family how, I mean 
obviously this is a big business and you said you had a seat on the board was there was it a big board did you have a lot of support from from them <clears throat> the way the, it's actually three families yeah. there's there's three um families that are make up the and they're all gallagher yeah. um, they're all kind of members of the same original family if oh, you know what so, I, mean. that's, I love them yeah, stories, yeah. and so um, and so the three families had three representatives and so I represent one of the families Matt represents another and then my cousin Connor represents the other and so the three of us work together and each of us has I mean now today it's it's different to when I obviously began but Matt um, has kind of a house building background so yeah. he really knows his stuff in that area Connor has a finance background so he knows his stuff in the finance and then I with my architectural background I obviously had a design knowledge yeah. but then I grew into a, a kind of commercial office and uh, retail sort of property related focus and um, so I suppose I look after the commercial end of the development uh, and investment business and the, uh, how are the dynamics of that because I can imagine <laughs> family members family and business yeah. can be challenging yeah. uh, I mean everyone has an opinion and uh, like it's great but it's also very challenging there's, there's good times are great the bad times can be yeah, fairly, yeah. yeah I mean the thing is, is uh, we all uh, would have strong opinions on the way we should do certain things so you can have you know moments when you know you're, you're at loggerheads with, with your family and that can be difficult but generally speaking you know everyone means well everyone's kind of pushing yeah. in the right direction and I, I'm kind of the young book who comes along and sort of uh, has all these ideas about technology and stuff and then the other guys they're at the next generation they're a bit older than me and they're all kind of you know calm down <laughs> so don't be thinking of all this stuff so it does but it is an interesting well, we'll dynamic get, we'll get on to why that's so important in a minute but I mean going back onto your tenants then so where you've brought in these commercial um, commercial agents to, to obviously attract the tenants how do you? How did you go about understanding what they wanted from your site as tenants, um, and what were some of the difficulties in kind of working your way around that, developing well, out the product? That has evolved. I mean, it's very clear to me now, looking back. Uh, I mean, I, I'm involved in this company now twenty year, twenty little over twenty years, and it has very much evolved in that time frame. Initially, we were offering. You know, very close to city centre, but about half the rental price. So it was a big discount. And so a lot of the bigger companies, they would have their main city centre kind of like front of house office, yeah. and then they'd have their back office, and we would be seen as a kind of a back office. Mm-hmm. And so they just wanted to keep the prices down. They wanted to kind of make sure that there wasn't huge overheads. And so the actual running of the estate was kind of influenced by those decisions. But what's happened in in the last 20 years is that the city has grown and it has crept out. And now we are, we're no longer suburban. We are right in the middle of it all. I I can almost throw a a stone into the docklands where Facebook and all these guys are. And so it's suddenly, it's got to the point where you've got big companies moving out to us. Um, they are getting a slight discount on the rent, but really they're, they're right in the middle of it all. Yeah. And the big thing for them is the, the war on talent. And they are super f- focused on making sure that their tenants, or their staff, I should say, they're super focused on making sure that the staff aren't leaving them. And because of that, I'm very focused on ways to um, engage the staff and make sure that they don't feel like that they're in some suburban office location, but that they feel like city centre. That is that is such an interesting point because I, I think the average time that some that an employee spends at a company at the moment is I think I read it was two and a half years, which seems nothing. So, as you said, finding the right talent and keeping hold of it is huge for especially the big companies like Google and Oracle. It's, it's a huge, huge spend for so, them. So, yeah. what do you, what are some of the examples of the things that? these companies may want to see in the environment that you create for them in order to keep their, their talent happy? Well, I mean, we're one of the, some of the, there's, there's a couple of trends that are most definitely starting to emerge and, um, and we're very clued into these trends because if you, if you miss these things, guys just start looking abro- look elsewhere. And um, one of the things, I mean, green sustainability has become a huge thing now. The park was not designed 
to be a sustainable park. It predated all of this kind of well, talk. Being built on a dump. <laughs> That's one aspect. But what we have done is we're very conscious of it. We, it's, it's a very environmentally... I mean, we've won landscaping awards year after year because of the we, we planted 1,700 trees in East Point and it's, it's a beautiful landscaped um, sort of office campus environment. Um, we've, we've put in tennis courts and football uh, court, if you know, a five-a-side yeah. type of indoor... And those are very, very popular. I mean, they're getting used all the time. I want to we, come and hold that. <laughs> we put in um, a, quite a bit of food and beverage outlets so that people have choice. Um, some of those, um, we actually expected them to do better. So this was one of the things that we learned along the way, is that the big companies like Oracle and Google, they have their own subsidized canteens. Mm-hmm. And so you go and put in your little cafe, you think you've got thousands of people that are going to visit it every day, and then you find that it's actually not as busy as it should be. And it's because guys can just stay in their office and get food at half the price. And so that was one of the issues that we kind of came across. But it's, it's all about engagement. So in more recent times, what I've been doing, I've actually been creating um, uh, regular video newsletters where I go on the camera and I talk to the, the occupiers and they can share this video amongst their staff and I bring them up to date with what's happening in the park and we're trying to create community events. We're trying to get, like, for example, a, an, uh, an intercompany football league. Oh, All the guys are text, texting me like, you know, can I get involved in this? How do we get involved? We're looking at putting on a tennis competition as well. And, you know, the whole idea is just to get people out of their offices, into the park, walking around, mingling with other people, so that they feel they'll, they'll establish relationships and roots, and they don't feel so easy then it's to just, leave. Yeah, know? it's enjoyment, isn't it? They want to enjoy coming to work, and I, I guess, uh, to kind of put it bluntly, some of these employers don't want them to leave that workspace, and they say they want them to have everything there, whether it's subsidised canteen, whether it's exercise well it's funny you you say that one of the uh, who shall remain nameless but one of the occupiers told me that when they put in the the food um, they subsidised this canteen when they put that in it actually kept all of the guys sitting at their desks for much longer during the day and those 15 or 20 extra minutes spent on the desk pays for their rent (laughs) <laughs> so these guys it's all you know it's all it's calculated a lot of time, isn't it? it's very yeah, much yeah. so yeah. but again I suppose that feeds back to that you've got to be doing your research to understand right what's the next thing that the maybe the next generation of talent are going to want because could be that I don't know in three or five years time the next people coming out of these big universities to take on these jobs um, uh, again we talked about environmental social and green they might all be vegan and so or they might want solar panels yeah. and I mean one of the one of the things uh, like I just happen to have a, a genuine interest in this kind of stuff mm-hmm. so it's not it's it, you know you could be a person who's just out there reading you know trying to find out what are they interested but I just have this natural kind of um, curiosity about that kind of thing so I read up a lot on workplace um, strategy and all of those things and so naturally I'm finding a lot of these things that are, are, are I'm reading about I'm noticing sort of soon after so you'll notice that Google or, or Oracle approach me about you know can we get something for latest thing that I've been getting a lot of is requests for detailed uh, waste uh, management reports and these guys want to know exactly how much of their waste is going into landfill, how much is being recycled, how much is being composted. And so they're really getting into the nitty gritty now. And you have to be able to provide these details. It's no good for us just to say, sorry, your bin just gets collected. We don't know what happens. With it. We have to now be part of this as well. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's really starting to become quite a, a nuanced business where, you know, you're, you're separated by how professional... Uh, an aspect you bring to this yeah. thing you know there'd be other guys that would just say I'm sorry we just you know leave the bins outside the front and that's it but, but then you risk losing your tenant mm. so it's something you can't you can't afford to do and, and sustainability is becoming such a key aspect if you don't have a sustainable building in I would I would say in five years time you will not get a tenant you just won't get tenants because it's becoming so prevailing this whole um, attitude towards it and I think what's driving it is actually the war for talent it's Mm -hmm. the young millennials and Generation Z that are coming to work 
if they recognize that the business that they're working for, their employer, is not sustainably minded, that's it. They're gone. They're out. They're going to move to another business. So just on that, obviously, like we've mentioned climate change and environmental sustainable green is a massive topic right now. And you obviously just said about this war for talent and these millennials wanting more from, from that. But this seems to be coming from the top down. Um, so what I mean by that is you've still got lower income businesses and lower income individuals and families. And although sustainability is probably high up on their priority list, um, there's bigger issues for them, which will be putting food on the table, essentially. So of course. Yeah. Do you think that the way in which the site was developed in terms of environmental, sustainable and green policies would have been different if those bigger companies such as Google and Oracle weren't interested and maybe it was more secondary or tertiary um, companies that you were attracting? Well, I think it's a... First of all, when we built it, none of this was a consideration. Yeah. And so it has evolved mm-hmm. and, and now it's a major consideration. We're even looking at uh, our, our, our shuttle bus moving from a diesel shuttle bus to an electric shuttle bus. Now, the problem with that is, is it becomes double the price. And um, so there's, there's aspects that, you, ha- you know, the economics still comes into it, but there's a huge amount of demand. I mean, the, the tenants are saying to me, oh, could you get the electric bus? You know, would you, would you bring that in? And I'm saying, it's no problem, but you guys ultimately have to pay for it, yeah. you know? And if you guys are happy to pay a quarter of a million for a bus as opposed to 100,000, we'll do it. And so it all comes down to, you know, who's prepared to pay. Uh, certainly the bigger companies, they are willing to pay this because it has become part of their corporate social responsibility. It's policy in their company, so there's no issue. Some of the smaller businesses, and, and by smaller, I mean, there, you know, there'll be companies with 50 employees or 60 employees. Those companies are less inclined to be looking for it I mean it's a nice to have but if it means an extra you know 20,000 a year of estate charges for them they're not so interested and so would you look at your development or your site sorry um, in regards to those bigger tenants being your anchor tenants and actually if they can do it then the smaller ones might get a trickle-down effect of, of as, as kind of like a bonus. Well, there's, there's, yeah, I mean, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, um, Oracle are in seven of our buildings and Google are in six of our buildings. So between the two of them, they are a major, major yeah. occupier in the park. And um, so we obviously have to pay attention to whatever it is. Uh, if they were to leave, it's a major hole in the uh, service charge uh, budget. And the landlords that own those buildings, we own a number of the buildings, but we've also got external landlords that have sort of stepped in over the years and, and purchased. Um, they're all expecting us to manage the park in a way that continues to deliver yeah. for the big occupiers. If we don't do that, we are going to end up finding ourselves with an empty park. So apart from that, we are starting to recognize that sustainability, it's not just about you know, numbers and economics. It's actually starting to, be, to, to drift into the conversation. These, you know, I have four daughters, and um, two of them are teenagers, and they're very vocal about this, and they're, they're, you know, they're very conscious of it. And I want to be, as a father, I want yeah. to make sure that I'm doing my bit. I don't want to be seen as, you know, the, the guy that's, you know, ignores all of these kind of critical issues. I think it's very difficult to ignore them at the moment when we're yeah. seeing sort of um, uh, everything in the news about climate change, even yeah. the weather at the moment flooding yeah, every, yeah. every year without fail. Well, I think we have all, you know, been guilty of ignoring it, but now all of a sudden it's becoming a real issue. And I do think that there's going to be a point uh, there's a line in the sand somewhere in the future how close or far away it's hard to say but that the government like the entire world will just suddenly say right this has got to be tackled and suddenly you're going to be looking at a major tax on your building if you're not sustainable for with cars yeah i mean it's in ireland just recently they published this plan for 2030 there will be no non-electric cars sold in Ireland mm. from 2030. Now, to, to get to that achievement, there's like a huge amount of work because there isn't enough charging stations yeah. for that at the moment. But 
it's what's necessary. If you look at Copenhagen in Denmark, those guys have already said that they're going to be zero carbon by 2025. I mean, that's just around the corner. It's it's quite amazing. Then you look at other cities. I, I don't know where London is, but I've heard some cities talking about 2050 being. Yeah, a, yeah. I mean, that's so far away. They are going to just be caught. They're just not going to be. Uh, they're going to have to bring that forward. I mean, I think I heard uh, Warren Buffett say um, about their sustainable department that actually they sit just below him and Charlie Munger. That's it. And so it's that department is now being seen as where we've originally it's in businesses it's been your operations team, your finance team, um, your business development and marketing team as, as kind of the, the three major ones, maybe a bit of HR there too. Now he's saying actually the sustainability and environment sits above all those. Yeah, and if you look at um, recently, you know Jim Cramer, the the investment yeah, guy, yeah, yeah. he um, he's a bit of a pers- colorful personality on, I think it's MSNBC or one of those channels, and he went on, uh, you can actually YouTube this, it's quite interesting, he went out and was being interviewed by somebody and she was asking him and he just said, sustainability is where it's all going, he's done with fossil fuels. And they were saying, yeah, but what about, you know, the returns, you know, BP, Exxon, all of these companies, they've got great dividend policies. And he says, it doesn't matter. There's a divestiture going on around the world. And these companies, it doesn't matter how they perform, their shares will continue to go down. Wasn't it BlackRock? Um, that recently just said they're, they're actually going to be getting out of all of that. Yeah, they're, they're, that's they're, it. They've decided exactly the same kind of philosophy. That's exactly. Philosophy. And so it doesn't matter, I mean, how... It's like tobacco. Yeah, it was exactly, a great profitable exactly business. You know, thinking, these yeah. were incredibly profitable yeah, businesses yeah. and then suddenly the world shifted. <laughs> well, it's and, adapt or die, isn't it? It it's, is, it's, yeah. It's, it's like British tobacco. I mean, they, most of their business is no longer selling tobacco. That's or it. American tobacco, whichever one it is. Yeah. You're, you're going to see exactly that. And I think that if you ignore this, you're going to be caught. This is not a situation where, oh, you know, you're a tree hugger. Because uh, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. the accusation that you got before, yeah, yeah, you know. Absolutely. But now it's it's pure business. It's, you know, in five years' time, there's an investable horizon. And is that investable horizon clear to you or not? And I don't think it's clear any longer whether your building is going to be rentable, you know, even sellable, because mm-hmm. in a couple of years time, the investment required to bring it up to spec will be so much that people will just walk away from your building. It'll be valueless, and you won't be able to sell it unless you're selling it for you know the less, less than the price that you can yeah. can build a new yeah. building, including the site. God, so interesting. So, um, if we go back on to um, talking about East Point specifically, sure. What were some of the struggles when developing out? a huge site and obviously I know it was done over an extended period of time but when you're building a, a site that's essentially it's almost its own town or own ecosystem what are some of the difficulties that you came up against? Well there's a lot of different um, stories I mean the first one I actually already mentioned the, the, the F&B outlets we didn't think that they would struggle the way they have because of the internal canteens so that was one um, Car parking is uh, another issue. You, when, you're, when you go to a, a suburban type environment, which is initially we were seen as, yeah. everyone drives. N- nobody was taking public transport. Um, by putting on our shuttle service, we were actually able to bring people to the door of the train station, which made a big difference. Yeah. Suddenly people would take the train in. and they'd, So that was an alternative that the, uh, that the occupiers could offer their staff. Um, we had a lot of uh, big occupiers that were looking at coming in and they were, they were hemming and hawing about it because they didn't know how the staff would react. Um, most of the time the staff are actually quite positive once they start working but some of them, they don't like the idea of coming to a, a suburban type yeah. environment. They, they're in the city centre, they like the idea but we've worked very hard to provide the kind of amenities that make people... The city centre would have, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a lot of that. We've, we've created walks. We're pretty active. Uh, we've created like exercise clubs. So yeah. guys go out and do lunchtime runs and things like that. Uh, in terms of prior to the, the development actually being built, you've got to go and offer a lot of incentives to the big occupiers. I mean, you're giving them, you know, you're doing their fit out for them or you're, you're giving them you know, a year's rent free or, or more for the anchor tenants that mm-hmm. kind of come in. 
so, I guess that's going to attract some of the other tenants to follow suit, right? Yeah, I mean, once you get a certain critical mass, once people saw that um, a certain number of these big names were going into the park, then you get the credibility and people say, oh, you know, it's nice to be able... What they don't want to do is move into a dusty building site and find that they're the only tenant there. And so you've got to give the first couple of early birds that come to, come to the party, those guys are going to get a really good discount. And that was one of the reasons why we had to get the tax designation, because you're just not going to sell a building that's sitting out... Um, that's in the middle of a dusty building site, you're just not going to be able to find buyers for that unless it has those extra incentives that the tax break gave them. You know? Right, so, and, and so what were some of those? That was that the capital allowances? Yeah, what it was was if you bought the building, I can't remember the prices, but if somebody bought a building for 10 million, they would have 10 million of capital allowances to spread over 10 years. Yeah, and uh, so okay. they could yeah. put it against capital gains yeah, that yeah, they made yeah. on other sales and things like that. So there was, it was attractive, yeah, yeah. Um, particularly for investors. And um, what we did was, um, in order to get these, most of them, we, were, we sold all of, almost all of the buildings we sold to tax partnerships. So there were investors, private investors would you know, get together in a syndicate yeah. and they would buy from us. A lot of the time, we ourselves, as directors of the company, we would also be in these partnerships yeah. so we could take advantage of the yeah. tax breaks ourselves. But we would do these... And, and I guess structure the sort of sale or yeah. lease or whatever it was we would structure in a favourable way. Yeah, it, it had to be. And uh, so we would buy the building back. And this obviously allowed us to finance the, the debt and things like yeah. that. But as time went on and we entered into the 2008 recession, the price of the land, and, like it was a brutal recession for Ireland. I think it was probably worse hit than the UK mm-hmm. ever was. And we had an 80% fall in values. Wow. Yeah. 80%. 80%. And so... And how, did you, um, how did you deal with that? I mean, what, was it, was it I, I guess on that, it's timing is key and you're hoping that your lenders aren't going to come and say, right, you're breaching your covenant. Well... We, we actually did breach our covenant in a couple of cases and, and it was touch and go for a period of time. It was very, very challenging time. And um, the benefit, I guess, is having strong tenants with good covenants. I mean, having the likes of Oracle, they're not going out of business. You know, they are going to continue there. There were a couple after September 11th. We had American Airlines actually in the park. Mm-hmm. To, they occupied an entire building and within six months they were gone. Wow. And, okay. uh, and you know, so there have been those kind of situations. Are you then concerned that you've got, say, Oracle, Google taking up such big parts and it's, I guess it's looking at what are the risks to those businesses must be? That, uh, that, does, that does enter into our mind and one of the reasons just we're so active and we, is because we know that if you don't, you know... If you take your finger off the if pulse. If you take your finger off the pulse, if these guys feel that you're not paying them any attention, they could just up and go. Now, one of the benefits we have of the, um, of the recession... Uh, it's, it's funny how things kind of, there's the cycles. Yeah. The recession, prices dropped 80%. Some of the buildings we bought back ourselves for less than the construction price. Brilliant. So, so you have the, uh, I don't know, uh, owner A, yes. who could but, have been the families together, and then you can join a syndicate individually to buy it back cheaper. And yeah. There was various things like that, but what also happened during this is the prices dropped so low that Oracle and Google both purchased buildings in the park. Oh, so they, uh, they've then set their anchor that, even deeper in the ground. We, yeah. we were very reassured by that because really? we suddenly said to ourselves, yeah. well, if they actually own physically the building, then they're less likely to just decide, right, we're gone, we're out of here. You know? Fantastic. And, yeah. and since then, Oracle have, in particular, Oracle have made huge investments in their buildings. I mean, they have such a high standard, technical, global standards. Um, are pretty much similar across the, they just built so that must give you so much kind of uh, reduce the sleepless the, the, <laughs> they just opened a, a lead platinum building in our park and the money that they put into it was so much more than the building is worth as an investment asset if you were to spend this kind of money you would just be bleeding losses yeah, yeah. but they're not, they're not doing it for that reason yeah. they're doing it because they want this war and talent to attract really good talent they have a building that is just head and shoulders above the rest and they can compete with the Googles and the Facebooks yeah. out there who are spending lots of money 
and, and so this is why they do it and so for us it's kind of music to our ears because we see these guys spending this kind of money and we say well at least it's, we're reassured that they're not going anywhere overnight you know, they, they've put a huge investment in and, and they'll think twice about whether they want to that's fascinating on. yeah um, so obviously managing this asset or various assets or with park uh, and again I make the comparison to Disneyland because it is just that big um, where do you personally fit into this kind of machine? You mentioned you're on the commercial side and you're doing a lot of. Um, I have a, I have I have multiple hats in 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 the commercial side. I I'm looking after the the commercial portfolio because we we do own a number of buildings mm-hmm. in East Point and um, and we have shares with other investors in, in some of the buildings as well. I would say in total we might have an interest in 16 of the buildings in the park. And so there's, there's the hands-on there, but a lot of those buildings are full rental insurance FRI leases, so we don't have a day-to-day involvement. But we own some of the buildings that are multi-lets, so we manage the kind of common areas. And there's, there's a bit of a role there, but it's, it's, it's minor enough. Well, I guess with, even with the sort of FRI leases, um, you're still, like you said, managing the uh, estate. The, the estate. There's so an estate management so, role. Yeah. is very hands-on. Now, we normally have a park manager who would do the role, but she's on maternity leave. Yeah. And rather than bring in a replacement, I step into the role okay. because it gives me... For, for the period that she's out, yeah. it gives me real hands-on, yes. finger on the pulse, and it's direct conversations with the facility managers on, on a day-to-day basis. And it sounds like you, you quite enjoy that. I well. do, actually, yeah. yeah. I, it's, it's just something that personally interests me, yeah. and, uh, but you, there's nothing like putting, you know, getting involved in that role to really understand, understand yeah. what, the, you know, what the difficulties are that these guys yeah, experience yeah. every day. And how do you monitor the performance of the site as um, an asset? So uh, clearly when there's expenditure to bring things up to standard, like you talked about uh, an electric bus or uh, putting in cycle paths and things like that, over what time do you want to see positive returns and how do you manage it? Um, For example, how do you monitor the return on putting in a cycle path? Or is it just the case that if it's on the estate, the service charges pay for that. That's or, that's how it that's how it works. On, on the buildings that you own um, separately, or like you say, with some of the multi lets, how would you go about? I don't know. Let's say you put solar panels on the roof. How do you monitor some of these things in the returns? It, it's it's a nuanced answer because first of all, in terms of the the estate itself, I mean we have security, we have landscaping, we have the shuttle service that we provide, and then there's just the general infrastructure. We're still monitoring for gas emissions yeah. uh, from methane. It's a, we're still monitoring it today, you know, twenty years, twenty five years on, and uh, and that system, you know, costs money to kind of keep these systems going. Um, all of that. It's you know it's a couple of million a year spent, but that gets allocated and it's paid on a per square foot basis throughout the park. So as time has evolved, the the, the tenants are asking us for things. I listen to them carefully. It, you know it, this is not something that you can ignore. If somebody's giving out that something's too expensive, you've got to bring it down. Yeah. If somebody's giving out that the service is not good enough, you've got to increase it. So we're constantly monitoring. During the recession, we had to cut back on some of these services because nobody wanted to pay the yeah. money. But then now that the war on talent has become a major concern, we're spending a lot more on things just to make it a little bit more attractive to people. We're spending money on events now. We would never have spent money on getting together. Say, for example, the, the intercompany football league yeah. and stuff. These little things make just a little difference, but they do cost money to manage and to kind of put yeah, time into. Like you say, they cost money up front, but you get a return because you get these happy tenants. Exactly. And, and at the end of the day, it's not coming out of our pocket. Yeah. It's coming out of the tenant's pocket, and they're the ones that are benefiting because they have a more attractive park. In terms of the buildings themselves, the, the more attractive the park is, the occupancy goes up. We're at about ninety nine point nine percent occupancy. Wow! Uh, you know, That's so we have yeah. we have. What was it in two thousand eight? You know? Oh, it went down to you know probably fifty percent at mm. one stage. Well, it's not too bad considering yeah. we lost eighty percent of the value. Yeah. I mean, it um, 
but what happened actually then was when it came to rent reviews and stuff, some of the bigger tenants like uh, Google, for example, they would have taken advantage of these, and, and they just they would pull out, and then they would rent again, go back in, and they rent, and so rents dropped to as low as five euro per square foot in some of the buildings, and so it was an absolute bloodbath for some of the some of the landlords that, that well, you own can, these you buildings. You can see why you were in a fortunate position to stay afloat, but you can see why lots of other people didn't. And yeah. it's, and I've spoken to someone else actually who he had a very interesting story about where the banks came and pulled the debt and he ended up buying the debt from the bank okay. at, I think 50 pence on the pound and then sold it off three months later for 80 pence on the pound but it was these people who were in a position where they could actually take advantage of take advantage is probably the wrong word but um, it's an opportunity yeah, it's, yeah. It's take advantage of the opportunity it's, it's, um, so I guess yeah it's, it's being in that being able to be in that position not be totally your, your, your capital reserves are critical and then you're just you're overall decision making and your discipline I mean sometimes you can decide oh here's a tenant let's just take him he's offering money but is he going to still be in business you know yeah, shortly yeah, yeah. We, we had uh, we've had an experience with a tenant who moved into the park um, offered a great rent um, was growing very very quickly and so we were delighted to, to see this happen and then he he, does, he does, do they start with a we? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? It's funny. We were approached by by that by that particular occupier, and we, we actually turned them down yeah. because those guys are kind of like bringing a cannibal to your own dinner party. Yeah, uh, they, <laughs> they they don't work with you; they work against you yeah. in, in in many respects. But uh, this occupier came in, and they were growing extremely rapidly. They were a, a vendor to one of the other occupiers in the park, and um, within six months or nine months. They called us and said that they had put their staff on protective notice, that their contract had been cancelled, and suddenly you've got a guy that can't afford the rent. Mm. And so you do have to be careful to select who's coming into your building because you know right now it's a booming economy, yes. but coronavirus, who saw coronavirus four months ago, would you have yeah. predicted that we would be looking at on the brink of a recession you know, from, a, from a virus? Nobody would have predicted it. So you just do not know what is around. So on that point then, what do you feel are the biggest risks to your business right now and what are you doing to mitigate those risks? Well, the biggest risk, I guess, would be to take the eye off the ball and, and fall out of favour with the, the, the occupiers. Yeah. Um, I, I put a lot of time and attention into the relationships that I have. I think relationships are, are critical. Mm-hmm. Um, when somebody asks for something, you don't resist it automatically. Like a lot of people might say, I don't want to spend money, yeah. you know, but you just have to hear them out and you have to try to you know, find a way to, to accommodate them in as best as possible. It's not always possible to give them exactly what they want, but a lot of the time, just the very fact that you're open to the conversation helps a lot. And so we're doing that a lot. I have a good relationship with every one of our occupiers. Um, it, there, were, there were times in the past when this wasn't the case, and um, my, my predecessor would have had the photo, you know, obviously you had a recession, mm-hmm. so things were very different, yeah. and so the automatic answer would have been, sorry, we're not doing it, we can't afford it. And that alienated one or two tenants, and so it's taken time to build that relationship and, back and I up. I guess it must be very difficult um, to get tenants that have shared values on the site because, I don't know, if, if something, a big service charge comes up, you need everyone to be buying into it, and if you start getting pushed back from one and not another, it can... Well, it's actually, it's a good point because we had a situation there, uh, I just met all of our occupiers about a month ago to um, to bring them up to date on an upgrade project that we're starting this year and we're putting in bicycle lanes and we're doing a lot of different work around the park and the total investment this year is probably around 1.5 million and um, to add that to an already, you know, a couple of million a year service charge is a, is a hit. You know, yeah. these guys will notice it in their budgets. But I sat, I, I basically put on a presentation in a room. Um, there was, I think, close to 40 of the occupiers present. They all sat there. I gave them the reasons why we're doing it, why it was necessary to future-proof the park. 
the expenditure, how it was broken down, how it was going to be funded, and then a Q&A for as long as they wanted to ask questions and to kind of give them reasoning as to why we yep. were doing this. Absolutely no pushback at all. Wow. Plenty of questions. Yeah. A lot of people asking why why was this yeah. been done and not that. But we had given it enough consideration. Well, that exactly. You've got into enough detail and obviously done your homework on the reasons. And yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, if you just as long as you just pay attention to people and don't railroad them. If they got the impression that we weren't listening and that this was entirely self-serving, they would have pushed back majorly. You know and. Uh, Instead, we've managed to get into a situation where we're actually being kind of congratulated for being so forward-thinking in some cases. And, you know, bike lanes, nobody thought that bikes were going to be such a big thing, you know, 25 years ago when this was master-planned. And suddenly we've got, you know, a thousand people. We're putting in bike shelters all over the place now because people did not want... Uh, to cycle to work 25 years ago now everybody's starting to cycle to work there'll be hoverboards in terms yeah. of time, really. and well, funny, to you, it's funny you say that these 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 uh, these mobile um, the, what do they call the scooters that you yeah, see the yeah. e-scooters yeah. that are flying around and everyone seems to have them now the problem is that they're being brought into the office and they're being put under desks and stuff and the occupiers are now saying can you guys create storage, storage for them outside we don't want them coming into the building and that's another, you know, yeah. problem that we're starting to think about because you don't—they don't want to be sitting out in the wet, so you can't have out, you know, open bike shelters. So we're looking at different lockers and the different. Well, I guess one, one of the issues you have with technology moving so fast is, in the past, we've had cars for a long period of time, but as technology kind of almost the day something comes out, it's out of day. Yes, um, and, and that's obviously a problem for you in increasing all that expenditure as, as, you, as you're moving forward well for example electric charging stations yeah. uh, people are starting to arrive into the park now driving Teslas and where's, where do I charge my car and we don't have any electric charging stations now Oracle have put some of them into their own parking area yeah. for their own staff uh, but they're not open to the general population of the park. Uh, one or two other occupiers have called me asking, "Can we do the same?" And that's starting to happen. Yeah. But me, as uh, the you know the estate manager and director of the park, I'm looking at it now, saying we need to put in a bank of these ourselves. We need to be proactive. We need to be putting these in before cars start arriving in and people are looking yeah. for this. So how do you go about that? It's it's a constant constant battle kind of stay in front of a serious amount of asset management involved even though you've essentially got these tenants and covenants in there that are self-managing so just on that on that part it's, it's yeah. It, yeah it's a real mix of it's a mixed bag because it, to a degree the park manages itself mm-hmm. I mean stuff that's being done today has been done for 20 yeah. years and I you've, mean, got, well, you've built up these processes and systems and yeah to The processes are there, but the idea is to throw a kind of a a fresh light on spotlight certain areas and and ask, can we do it differently? And I put a lot of uh, time and attention into innovative ideas, and I love innovation technology. I'm constantly looking for solutions, and a lot of the time there's resistance to them, but you find that... I'll give you an example. Um, There's a tenant in the park who approached me recently and they were asking if there was space for them to add another 45 desks. And uh, 45 desks is probably around 5,000 square feet. So it's, it's a floor in one of the smaller buildings. It's half a floor in one of the bigger buildings. And I said to them, um, okay, 45 desks, we don't have anything available. But as I was speaking to them, it was, became obvious that they had, uh, they had a policy where you, you could work from home. So staff, when they wanted to, could just decide to stay home and work using the you know, op- online yeah. cloud, and they would just dial in. But when they did that, their desks in the office were sitting there with their name on the desk. Nobody could, nobody could move. Nobody could sit down on their desk. And I said, you know, why aren't you guys moving to an agile workplace where somebody goes and works for the day, their desk is free for the day. You know, somebody yeah, else can sit there. Online, sign in, book and, the desk. And, and so they have something, they have about 200 staff working in, this bu- in the building. And of those 200 staff, about 100 would work from home at any one time. So you could have 50% yeah. of the desk getting empty. 
So that would be 100 desks available at any time for somebody else to sit in, but they're looking to add 45 desks elsewhere in the park. And I just said, guys, come on. So there's technology now where yeah. you can have desk allocation automated. You know, it's, it's just helping make everything more efficient. That's it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's now a lot of these organizations, they haven't started to think about mm-hmm. that yet, but I think those days are coming. And, and that's one of the reasons why we, we mentioned company starting with we those guys flex space that is something that we're starting to look at now ourselves yeah, yeah. because as people are you know you've got well, you're just providing you're just providing a solution to the need yeah they? exactly yeah, yeah. And, and and we were to be fair to them they were a fantastic product market yeah. fit they were brilliant now their valuation and their ipo yeah. obviously was a yeah. complete shambles but the actual product itself yeah. is very very good and, uh, Anywhere there's an office with free beer on tap, I'm happy to <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah, but I've noticed that um, you know there was a time in the past where we would easily find tenants for a five thousand square foot office. Yeah, we would you know a space would come up, we'd put it out there that it's available, and it would be filled immediately. Not anymore. Uh, we work have soaked up all of that size of space. And so it's the bigger occupiers now that are moving into the space as opposed to single occupiers yeah. that take it this, this one lease. God, so interesting. So what do you think, what are you excited about for the future of UK real estate and property? Well, I think obviously Brexit uh, has, has gotten into the middle of that and whether that's a, an advantage or a disadvantage the, the jury is obviously out. I did notice, because I've been at Brendan's last event, yeah. and I was listening to the speakers on the stage talking about the bump, the Brexit bump, as they're saying. So that's interesting. And as an organization, Earlsford, we've actually started looking to the UK to invest. And we actually have a small residential development in a town called Downham Market, um, just north of London. And we're building, I don't know, 30 houses or something like that. So we're looking at that. Commercially speaking, um, I think we need to study the market a little yeah. bit more. We're not 100% sure. There have actually been... Are you confident in Ireland then and Dublin maybe absorbing away some of that? Well, you know, there was, a, there was some lip service given to that. Yeah. I, we did have people saying, oh, look, you know, JP Morgan have moved yeah. over. And there was these kind of things, but... A lot of the time, that's marketing PR, and what actually they were just consolidating an office they already had, mm-hmm. and so people put a little bit of a badge spin on that and yeah, spin yeah, it yeah. out. So uh, I think, I mean, definitely London is a major, major market. I lived here for a couple of years, so I love this city. I love visiting, and um, it's going to be an interesting period. This coronavirus, I don't know, that has caught us all by surprise, and uh, I think it's going to trigger a short-term recession. I do think it's been coming. I've been, we've been, we've been sitting on a bit of cash for a while as a as a business because we just think. How do you make that decision to, like we said before, about your capital reserves? And how do you go about as a big company going right? This is how much we're going to keep in capital reserves, as opposed to investing into our business at a point in time. It must be this. Well, it's something I always find really interesting. It's a difficult one, and it boils down to discipline again, a little bit like uh, you, you mentioned Warren Buffett earlier. I mean, you've got to be greedy when everyone is scared and scared when everyone is greedy. And we've noticed a a certain amount of froth in the market for quite a period of time. And we just sort of said, you know what, this market, it's been going up. If you just look at the the cycle, it's been up, 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 up for for years now. You say that, but Australia's had a bull market for 23 years or something like that. It's just like... It's true. There are yeah, exceptions, yeah, yeah. and I know, yeah, and I think, yeah. and I think what Toronto is is probably the same. I've yeah, heard different yeah. things, but usually speaking, if you take normal market dynamics into account, what goes up must come down, yeah. and you might find an exception. I think you've got to be comfortable with your FOMO. Uh, yes. You know, fear of yeah. missing out is one of the biggest risks. I think. If you've well, got you're comparing your, yourself to others, isn't it? That's well. it. Yeah. And yeah. there's a certain amount of you've just got to sit back and say, you know what? We have a policy here of keeping a certain amount of reserves behind, and and let's just make sure that we stick to that. And if a deal comes along, 
and if it's an absolute no-brainer then maybe we'll dip in but yeah. generally speaking no-brainers turn into headaches <laughs> every deal I've ever done that has been described as a no-brainer has turned into a ball of crap that I really regret that getting sounds out. like it's a whole new podcast episode yeah that's another so, episode yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic so yeah, I, I, this has been so interesting um We'll finish up now on the last question that I try and ask everyone, um, which is, what's the kindest thing someone's ever done for you in business? Well, it's funny. I, I've been thinking about this question because I saw it. <laughs> I, I saw that you ask it every time, and it's it's a difficult one because there's been a lot of occasions when I, I would say um, shortly after my father died, uh, I actually applied for a job in a big architect's firm in Dublin, and they gave me a job there, and I ended up working with a guy called Eugene, and Eugene was I think at the time he was in his late fifties. And he just was incredibly good guy. Um, he's just a super person to work for. And I would say he was the kindest person to kind of take me under his wing. And, and I mean, I was you know, studying architecture, didn't have any experience, but he really helped me develop uh, as a kind of as a person he, he would throw me into these kind of difficult situations and he'd say okay Gavin you make the decision you go and do it and that was something that a lot of the time when you're young and inexperienced you're scared to make those decisions yeah. and he, he, he would back me up and he believed in me and so I would say Eugene if you're ever listening Eugene thank you <laughs> that was probably the kindest thing yeah. there was a couple of really hairy moments when I actually had to stop works um, because I just thought something was wrong I didn't actually have the experience to know if I was right or wrong but I just said no no stop the work and it turned out to be right uh, but even if it had gone wrong I wouldn't have gotten eaten out of it yeah. by Eugene he yeah. was just the kind of guy that owned his decision to kind of put me in position of responsibility and so Eugene Brilliant. thank you Yeah. and is there anything else you want uh to kind of let the audience know or something maybe we haven't discussed that you think is, is, is important? Um, well, I mean, mindset and all of that stuff, that's a, an area that is really interests me and um, high performance, uh, all of that area. I actually write a bit about it and I have a blog if anyone where, wants to. Where can we find that? The blog is Gavin J, J for James, so Gavin J Gallagher dot blog. And I have read, I've read a couple of people. I have you, there, actually, yeah. I'm trying to put more I'll out put, there. I'll put a yeah. link in, in, oh, yeah, in the thanks. show notes. On and then I, I like to put out uh, the odd video on YouTube, and I'm, a, I'm actually thinking about launching my own podcast as mm -hmm. well. Um, it's going to be around about some of the topics that we've covered today, yeah, specifically should, in, the, in the area of workspace and office development yeah. and things like that. And so, yeah, keep an eye out for yeah. that, and uh, you'll find me on social media and with the Brilliant. usual usual places well thanks so much for obviously making the journey and we're here at Brendan Quinn's uh, commercial summit which is a brilliant day as well yeah, in, in Canary Wharf um, and thanks for taking the time to, to come and chat to us it's been it's been absolutely fascinating pleasure right thank you please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the Rodcast.